0: Okay, my name's still Mark. I'm still one of the pastors here at Stonebrook. And we are in the middle of a series, we're sort of at the beginning of it, called Jesus Church. And I'm really uh, interested in this, really excited about this. I have so many things that I want to talk about regarding uh, what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to build my church, what church should look like. And um, there's, there's things that we as a church, we're about, we actually started to have public meetings Uh, We didn't officially launch, but we just sort of met met together on Sunday for a little while. Four years ago. And there's some really great things that have happened. We just figured out uh, this past week, or it was a week before maybe, that almost like five or six short of 500 people have made some type of decision for Christ. Whether for the first time accepting Jesus or renewing a relationship in the last four years. So some really, really good things have happened. But uh, in in praying this week, just talking to God and... uh, you know, God, God doesn't ever talk to me audibly or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm just like you are. I'm praying and thinking, I don't think God even likes me today. He's not just, you know, I just don't feel any connection or whatever. So don't think, you know, that every time I pray or something, God talks to me. But I just had the sense that he was saying, you know, you, you guys, you think that you you know, that you, you've been for four years. You think that you've done some things pretty well. Well, you haven't even... It's all just really been preparation. It's all just getting started to get ready to maybe start to do something eventually. It's, uh, it's nowhere near where God wants to be and what God wants to do. Not just through us. We're not the only church by any means at all. But uh, God really wants to do some amazing things, I believe, in this community. And I want to partner up with that. And uh, I believe the more that we can be what he had in mind when he said, I'm going to build my church and his church is supposed to, frankly, look like Jesus, hence the name, Jesus Church. And there's so many things that I have that I want to discuss about that. And I want it to be a conversation, not just my ideas of what should happen, if, uh things that you see that we need to do differently, we need to do better. Things that we, and, and I enjoy it when people say, here's what you really suck at. You guys are really bad at this. And I can give you a long list of things that as a church, like, we're really terrible at this. Um, you know, I love those suggestions. And along those things, if you have a question and you can, We can call this the question line and the you suck line today, okay? Anything that, wow, you know, I really have a problem with this church, with this area, you can text that to this number right here. Because what we're going to do today, uh, in thinking about what kind of church Jesus wanted us to be and and the way that Jesus was, one way that Jesus taught, one one of his favorite ways, is he would propose questions to his audience ...or a small group of people that, was, that were around him. And they were constantly asking questions of him. He was very open. It wasn't just where you came and you sat and listened to him... ...and he sort of lectured or pontificated... ...and you just listened to whatever he said. He wanted it to be... A, everything, with, everything with God is relational. He wanted it to be a sort of a back and forth... ...to where you could feel free to ask him anything. And I've always wanted church to be that way... ...because the churches I grew up in... ...I was actually afraid to ask some questions... Uh, some things if you questioned or if you doubted, or if there's a particular way that uh, that it was the, the minister presented something, if you question that you 're almost like you know, excommunicated or something. How dare you question but no that 's not at all the way that Jesus was so along that line, I got a question from someone on a Facebook message a couple of weeks ago, and this particular person she said she talked to me a little bit more about it than just this question, but she said help i 'm uh, starting a Bible study." uh, out on the fort. I'm going to be leading this group of women. And the Bible study is over questions that people have. And I'm afraid they're going to have questions that I don't know the answers to. So can I ask you some questions? So, you know, in case there's something that I don't know. So I thought, well, you know, it should probably be something really simple. So sure, go ahead and ask me. But then she asked this question. And you'll see in this question, she asked three of the biggest questions that people ask concerning God and the Bible. And so I can't just let this go. And I can't just answer that in a Facebook message. So I wanted to deal with some of these questions today and maybe even next week. But here's what she says. You probably already read it. It says, Have you ever heard someone say, The Bible never contradicts itself? Now I was raised in church to where this is, this is what uh, I believed. And, and what, you'll, what you'll see as we, as we go along is there are certain terms that people use. For example, like this book, preachers would hold up this book and they would say this this is the word of god everybody would say amen they would hold up this book and say this bible this book this bible is without error and everybody would say amen this bible this book has no contradictions it doesn't contradict itself it's perfectly harmonized through all of its books everybody would say amen now none of us had actually read it and most christians i know you start talking to them about the bible and they're like I got nothing. I know Jesus is in there somewhere, and it seemed like there's a guy named Paul and Moses. Wasn't there a Moses? I think there's a Moses. But we're sure of all those other things because somebody stood up on a stage and said that. So, when we start talking about does the Bible have, never contradicts, we'll have to define our terms because some people get really defensive. But we're going to talk about that. Let's read the question before we talk too much about It, it says, I'm confused by that statement because, for example... God asked Abraham to kill Isaac. By the way, I just copied and pasted this. I just now noticed you misspelled Isaac. I can't believe I let that slip. Okay, we'll we'll let that go. He later sends another sacrifice and saves him in the end. But one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. Several times throughout the Bible, people are destroyed at God's direction. So I sort of sum it up into these are three questions that she's asking... And I get these questions all the time. Number one, does the Bible have discrepancies? Are there inaccuracies or contradictions in what we call the Bible? Does God ever change? Is God always the same or does God change his mind? And thirdly, why is God depicted as violent? In the Old Testament, God many times is depicted as sanctioning someone to do violence or actually himself doing Violence. And this sort of circles back to the discrepancy because Jesus says, Love your enemies. And the Old Testament, God is like, Kill them dead and stomp on them when you're done. Burn their house to the ground. Kill their children and their donkey. It's like God is a gangster or something. I'm going to kill you and your donkey and your donkey's donkey. Take that. And it's like, Whoa. There's a discrepancy here, because we have this Jesus, peace-loving, long-haired hippie guy, Jesus, and we think he's all-loving, and then we have God, which it seems like he's commissioning violence. So, let's just jump into this and see how far we go. There's no way, and I would love to, because I can talk about this in excruciating detail, and I just love it. But we're just going to try to hit some high points uh, this week and maybe next week. We'll see. So uh, let, let me present this to you as we go. W- when most people think of various issues in their life, a lot of people think in a black and white or an either-or manner. They think it's, it's got to be one or the other. But actually, so many things <clears throat> with God and with life that we just don't realize are both and. And that confuses some people. Oh, it's my phone. I'm getting a Facebook message as we speak. Oh, it's from the person that... Wrote the, the, uh, the question. She's, she was here in the first service. I don't see if she's here. She's not here. I should message her back right now. But she's saying, thank you for dealing with my question in the first service. I'm going to say, you're welcome. You misspelled Isaac. <laughs> That's probably not a good thing. But when we say, does the Bible, uh, so many people can't think in terms of, well, it's yes and no. There's nuance here. Does the Bible have discrepancies? Let's, let's just talk about it a little bit. For example, Jesus says very, very clearly, love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Pray for those that persecute you. But then Jesus comes along and says, if you don't hate your parents, you can't serve me. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that a contradiction? And people who are skeptics, people who are honestly, many of them honestly seeking to understand God, and they read these things, and it becomes very confusing. Jesus said to love my enemies, but then he says to hate my parents. Well, that's, I mean, that's actually a particular easy one. But to say, is that a contradiction? Well, yes and no. Because when Jesus says hate your parents, when you understand the culture of the first century, Jesus is using hyperbole. He doesn't want you to hate your parents, but he's saying if you're going to be my follower... By comparison, you can't put your parents ahead of me. You can't put your relationship with your husband and wife ahead of me. So Jesus is trying to say it in an extremely strong way, and that's the way Jewish rabbis would speak. They would say constantly to get people's attention and to really drive home a point, they would say something outlandish. Just like, you can't, you know, it's easier for a rich person to get to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, his audience, when he said that, you know, we're like, hmm. But his audience would have laughed. Jesus is using hyperbolic comedy to drive drive a picture home in their mind. Jesus didn't have slides. (laughs) He couldn't point to that. So he's creating this word picture that's outlandish. But when he says, if you don't hate your parents, you can't be my follower. He's trying to shock them into going, oh, this relationship that I'm supposed to have with you is greater and more important and a bigger priority than anything else in my life. Got you. They didn't go home, walk through the door, Hey mom, I hate you. Why? Because Jesus said I have to. I thought he said love your enemies yesterday. Well he did. Maybe if you'll be my enemy I can love you again. But for now you're my parent, I hate you. No, it's confusing. Is it a contradiction? Yes. But really it's not. And there are all kinds of discrepancies, inaccuracies... But what was the purpose? For example, people will talk about, and and here's another word, let me put that word up there, anachronistic. You guys will feel so smart after. Does anybody know what anachronistic means? Anybody? There's a hundred bucks, if you know. Huh? You just thought you'd just give it a shot for the hundred bucks, didn't you? (laughs) I like your style. I don't... Here's a peppermint. That's all I have. Just for attempting. Okay. Headlines. At Stonebrook, woman injured by peppermint. What's going on at that church? Um, Anachronistic means to be out of place chronologically. And when people read historical documents, but especially the Bible, many times we approach them in an anachronistic manner. What I mean by that is we as Americans, we value accuracy. We want the report from the television... When Brian Williams says he was in a particular helicopter or whatever, and he, we find out he wasn't, we kick him out because he gave us inaccurate information. We want our history, we want our, our, the details to be accurate. But in ancient uh, Israel, in Jesus' time and even before then, their purpose wasn't necessarily to communicate Accurate information concerning science or history. And let me show you this for example. Here's a, a, a painting of, uh, by a guy named Pablo Picasso. Actually, it's just something I threw together before service, it looks like. Now, for, let me just take a quick poll. How many of you think that is a good painting? Go ahead, don't be shy. See, you guys are art lovers. How many of you think this guy flunked third grade art class? See, that's what I think. But I appreciate it because I know there's an artistic thing. But here's the thing. Picasso's purpose with this painting wasn't to accurately depict facial anatomy. It wasn't to accurately have a medical manual where you can look and say, well, here's where the eyes should be. If someone goes by what Picasso draws to see years later what people look like, in the time where Picasso lived, they would go, wow, people's eyes were strange back then. And what's that coming out of the side of her head? But that's not his purpose. He's using an inaccuracy to communicate something. I don't know what he's communicating, but it's something. Maybe Do you know what he's communicating? She knows this painting. Of course, she's so smart. Go ahead. (laughs) That just needs an applause right there. (laughs) Wow. See? That is exactly, by the way, how many things, when you read through the Bible, we read and we go, wait a minute. There's no such things as giant sea monsters. This is a myth. This is incorrect. It's inaccurate. This is not scientific. They aren't aware of what's going on in the world. That's right. They weren't aware. But it's communicating something else. Is it inaccurate? Yes. Viewed anachronistically from our viewpoint. But does it still have a purpose that there's truth? Absolutely. So, um, in fact, let me, let me just use that one. Um, go to the scripture there. In, in Job. I'm sort of jumping around this morning. This will be another one of those ADD messages. Here is a scripture. And here, here's, here's an interesting concept that I want you to get. You will understand the Bible, first of all, the first thing to understand is start with Jesus. I say this all the time. If we start with who we know Jesus to be, we will understand the rest of the text so much better, the rest of what the Bible is trying to say. Jesus is the full picture. And I'm sorry, Rachel, I'm moving you around. Jesus, do the one where Jesus said, I'm the only one that really knows the Father. Jesus said, no one. Say that, say that with me. I want us to get this. Say no one. Who does no one mean? That's no one. Here we have the Son of the Living God, a guy that predicted his own death and resurrection and actually pulled it off. I always go with whatever he says, by the way. He says, no one truly knows the Father except the Son. That would include Moses. That would include Isaiah. That would include Jeremiah. As we read through the Old Testament... We have to read all of those things through the lens of who Jesus is. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, beautifully and perfectly shows us who the Father is. Jesus says, if you want to know the Father, you look at me. So, and the way I sort of communicate that is, uh, you know, recently the new Star Wars movie. Have you seen, how many of you have not seen the new Star Wars movie yet? You haven't seen it. Jar Jar Binks actually becomes a Sith Lord and is killed at the end by Princess Leia. Then they all take uh, poison Kool-Aid and die and there's no next movie. So don't even bother to go see it. No, that's not the way it is at all. I didn't want to spoil it too bad. But, for example, if you've watched the the old Star Wars movies, first of all, if you just take one sliver of of the series. For example if all you've ever seen concerning the Star Star Wars franchise was a little clip of Jar Jar Binks, let's all just pause and, and ask God why Jar Jar Binks was ever allowed to be in the Star Wars movies to begin with. But if all you'd ever seen was Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars movie, do you understand what's going on with the story by looking at Jar Jar Binks? No, you don't. You have to see the whole thing to get what the point is. Same thing with the Bible. That's why it's so good, number one, start with Jesus. But here's the thing. Like when the movie came out in 77, 78, something like that, and you have Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, and you you have that awkward moment, I think, in Empire Strikes Back where they kiss, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be, they're going to eventually get together. And then you go back and you watch the prequels, and you're like, oh, my gosh, they're brother and sister. Well, if you watch the prequels before knowing what had come before with Luke and Leah, the prequels don't make near as much sense. But when you start with Luke and Leah and you go back, you're like, oh, now that makes sense. Very, very similar thing with the Bible. Start with Jesus because Jesus said that everything that was written in the Old Testament is really pointing to me. You can only understand it if you know me first. So, I have no idea where I was going with that. Oh, go back to Job. In Job chapter 41... (coughs) As you read through the Bible and you say, because well, here's, here's Job, this is God talking to Job. He says, can you catch Leviathan? Have you ever heard the term Leviathan? Leviathan is like this ancient sea monster. I do think it was also a heavy metal band sometime in the 80s. But uh, Leviathan was this, this creature. He says, God says, can you catch Leviathan with a hook and put a noose around its jaw? And then there's another scripture, look in uh, Isaiah. Isaiah says, In that day the Lord will take his terrible swift sword and punish Leviathan, the swiftly moving serpent, the coiling writhing serpent. He will kill the dragon of the sea. Well, people read this that are skeptics, and they're like, wait a minute, this is a myth. There's no such thing as a sea monster. Other places this dragon is depicted as breathing fire. And you read that and you're like, come on, there's not a fire-breathing dragon. So skeptics over here say, see, what you have in the Bible is simply myth and legends that people came up with to try to explain what was happening in their world. Because there's no such thing as a fire-breathing dragon. But then people come over here that are Christians and they're trying to make it work. And they're saying, no, I think Leviathan was actually a dinosaur. And somehow, you know, the earth, they, they say, was only created 6,000 years ago. So there was this big dinosaur with scales, and that's what Leviathan is. And the people over here that don't believe in God, and that are trying to see if this, this Bible they're reading is true, they look at them and they go, are you serious? That's all you have? It's a dinosaur? You've got to be kidding me. They're both wrong. So when someone says, is the Bible myth, parts of it, what God is doing here. And when you look beyond it, it's just like, I love it that Julia knew what that painting was. When you look at the Picasso painting at face value, you're like, the guy doesn't know nose, ears, or heads, or anything. But there's something beautiful behind it that he's trying to communicate. The same thing, and this is what God does. He's always done it from the start of creation. It's what is best, perfectly, and most beautifully pictured in Christ, where Christ stoops He comes from His perfect place in heaven. And He comes to live with us. And instead of punishing those that are His enemies, He climbs up on a cross and dies for them. He takes on their wrongs. He takes on their culture. He lives among them. He feels what they feel. He starts where they are. God constantly does it. In ancient times, people believed that the earth was surrounded by these cosmic waters. And in these cosmic waters there were all kinds of creatures that were evil, that were trying to cause bad things to happen on the earth. One of those creatures was called Leviathan. Leviathan is a mythical creature. God stoops to their level. He doesn't come in and says, Hey, you all are stupid. There's no such thing as Leviathan. Cosmic waters. What's the matter with you people? That's how preachers do. They come and say, here's the standard. Here's what you have to do. Jump up and come to here. God has always said, okay, where are you right now? Let me stoop to where you are. Let me look you in the eye. Okay, you think that there's a mythical creature surrounding the earth in these cosmic waters that is causing you harm. Well, I'm telling you, I can kick his behind. I almost said something else there. (laughs) It's probably not good to have on the tape. But he's saying, you think that this Leviathan is causing your life upheaval and all this disaster in your life? Well, I tell you what, I can put a hook in his mouth just like you put a hook in the fish at the river. He's nothing compared to me. So, does the Bible contain myth? Yes. Does it have a purpose? Absolutely. Is there a truth there? Is there a discrepancy? Yep. But God works within the brokenness of the people to bring them up into relationship with him. So let's hit another one real quick. What was the second question? Oh, does God change his mind? There's a scripture in, there it is. Wow, that was good, Rachel. You read my mind. In Malachi, God says this, I am the Lord, I do not change. So when people will say, well, God always is exactly the same. He never changes. And to that I say, yes, you're exactly right. But then when you say, does God ever change? I'm going to say, yes, he does. And when you look at certain scriptures, once again, you can see there's a discrepancy. There's a contradiction. But You have to look past the facade of the painting to what is the purpose. Um, Let's look there. Let's go to 1 Samuel. That's the next one. When God started first dealing with the Jewish people, the people of Israel... They were a slave nation in the land of Egypt. Through a bunch of supernatural, amazingly wonderful signs and wonders, he brought them out of that. And so these people don't know him. You have to understand as you begin to read uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these stories in the Old Testament, parting of the Red Sea, all those things, he's dealing with people that have no idea who he is. They're just glad to be out of slavery. And so God plainly tells them, that he wants their nation to be different than all the other nations around them. He wants to be their leader and he wants them to depend only on him. He doesn't want them to have a king. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, because God knows human nature, God plainly says, I know that when you get into the promised land when we're, where we're going, you're eventually going to want a king. I don't want you to have a king. That's God's will. That's God's purpose. That's God's standard, his best. He says, but I know you're going to want to have a king. He says, so tell your king there's three things I don't want him to do. I don't want him to um, get all kinds of money for himself, collect a lot of money for himself. I don't want him to have a bunch of wives. And I don't want him to go back to Egypt after horses. Interestingly, we call the wisest man on earth Solomon. and We call him so smart Solomon did the exact three things that God said for a king not to do. He went to Egypt, got all kinds of horses, had all kinds of women, and had all kinds of money. That's another sermon altogether. But God says, I don't want you to have a king. After hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel not having a king, they start complaining to a guy named Samuel, who's sort of the overseer of all of them. He's a prophet. And they say, we want a king. Finally, all the elders, here in verse 4, met at Ramah to discuss this matter with Samuel. Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old. Your sons are not like you. Samuel was a terrible parent, by the way. His sons were like, oh my gosh. It's, it's like, I don't know what it need to be. What, what's the show? I can't even think of the show. I'll move on. <laughs> Look, you, your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request. and He went to the Lord for guidance. Now notice what God says. God has said over and over. I don't want them to have a king. He says, do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed passed on the Lord's warning to the people Who were asking him for a king. He goes through this big long process. Of all the bad things are going to happen if you have a king. And he tells them God doesn't want you to have a king. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so we still want a king. They said. We want to be like the other nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said do as they say. And give them a king. So did God change? Yes and no. Did God want them to have a king? Is that what his character was? That he wanted to rule over them and not have a natural man? Yes, he did not want them to have a king. Did God ever change from that? No. But did God change because he... And here's what people really can't get. And I say this from time to time. And I think sometimes people think I just made it up. But I got it from God. I got it from Jesus. I got it from the Bible. Here God is stooping to where the people are. People think that simply because this is what God's standard and this is what God's will is, that that's where everyone needs to be. It doesn't work in practicality. God has always, always, always loved people more than principles. He's always loved relationship more than rules. He will always stoop... And say, okay, that's where you are. I'll work through the king then. And from then on, God works through the king instead of directly with them. Over and over and over it happens, time and time again. I've talked a lot of times about that, for example, a lot of people who are atheists or skeptics, when they look at the Old Testament sacrifices... All through the Old Testament you have God saying, Okay, take a lamb and cut it and do this. And there's blood and guts everywhere. It's really cool. You should read your Bible. You have all these blood and guts and gore stuff happening. And people say, Well, see, God's just like every other God. His wrath had to be appeased by a blood sacrifice. No. Sacrifices were not God's idea. God plainly came to the people and wanted to talk to them directly. The first thing that they did, God. for example, the Israelites came out of, of Egypt. So I didn't mean to talk about this, but we will. They came out of Egypt, and they came to a place called Mount Sinai. God came down and wanted to talk to them directly. He said, have them all gather around. I want to have a conversation. I want to introduce myself. It's God coming down and saying, hey, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonebrook. And he's introducing himself to the people. And the people stopped their ears and told Moses, tell him to stop talking to us. We can't take this. It freaked them out. It's actually in the original Hebrew. It says it freaked them out. No, it doesn't. But when you read it, you can tell. These people are like, Whoa, God, you're a little too much. Back up. And they said, Moses, we can't handle that. You go talk to him. One of the very next things that happened, God began to talk to Moses because these are people that have been in Egypt. They've seen what they do. God says, Okay, When you do your sacrifices, they already had a culture and an understanding that the only way to get to God was by sacrificing something to Him. They couldn't understand a God that just wanted to come and sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't fathom it. All they knew was, oh, you get to God, you got to make a sacrifice. So God says, okay, let's start with the sacrifice. But here's how I want you to do it. And then he describes the way to do the sacrifices, which became a beautiful, beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus would eventually come and do and do away with the sacrifices. He used the sacrifices to get him to quit doing sacrifices. He says as much, when when Isaiah and Jeremiah start to talk talk to Israel, the Jewish people, God says, I don't want your stinking sacrifices. Stop with the sacrifices already. I don't care about that. To when... I used to read that and I was like, excuse me, God, these were your idea. Why don't you like them? Because it wasn't his idea. He stooped to where they were as a culture and worked within what they, what they were doing. Did he change? No. But it appears that he changes in order to meet with their culture. Um, I have like one minute and 30 seconds left. I don't want to go a different direction. Does anybody have a quick question or has a question been sent in? You guys are all afraid, aren't you? I don't have a question, but really, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God gave the Ten Commandments, those were given specifically for the Jews. Yeah? Yeah? But uh, John thirteen thirty four says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Yeah? And it goes on further to say, Against such there is no law. Yeah, the law was given. What he's talking about is, and that becomes confusing when we talk about contradictions and discrepancies. Because you have all these things in the Old Testament where it was like, boy. God has all these rules and laws and requirements that I'm supposed to do. But God is dealing with people who don't understand a love relationship. And what, so what He has to do in order to keep them close. And I say this all the time. And this is actually how we... This, I'm going to circle back around to Jesus Church. This is actually how we design church. Other, other Christians many times have really taken me to task and other ministers because you've got to tell people they're sinning. Well, most people know they're sinning. You don't have to tell them. But but secondly, God, God would always stoop to where they were in order to bring them where he needed them to be. And so he has all these laws in the Old Testament, all these commandments, because these people don't understand love your neighbor. They haven't received the Holy Spirit to live inside of them. They don't have a direct relationship with God. They're not being empowered by God himself through that relationship that Jesus provided. So in order, in fact, the New Testament says those Old Testament laws, they were like guardrails that kept them from going off uh, and totally serving other gods. They kept them close enough to God until Jesus could come and reveal who God was perfectly. And then that's where Jesus leaves us with. And that's what the New Testament is. When people say, well, what are we we required to do in the New Testament? One thing, love. Love. What does love require? Do you ever think, Mark, about the Ten Commandments? Never. Never. if I I read them. In fact, most of you couldn't even tell me. I'm just going to do a quick poll and then we're going to leave. Maybe. Um, How many of you know where the Ten Commandments are found without Googling it right now? Exodus something. That's close. I wanted to see if you knew back. Did you know Exodus 20? Huh? The Bible. Okay. Here's another peppermint. The Bible. What's the matter with you, preacher? It's in the Bible. You should read it sometime. That's what she's saying. Most people don't even know them. In fact, and boy, this is random. This will make, here, I, I ended the last service by making people mad, so I want to give you the equal opportunity. Although I'm going to say something a little different to make you mad this time. The New Testament calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death. Let's pray and be dismissed. People are like, we need to hang the Ten Commandments on the wall. New Testament says it's the ministry of death. We'll talk about that more. Now that I've confused everybody, let's go home and have a wonderful Sunday. But seriously, we have to leave. Father, thank you so much for your word. Sometimes I wonder why you even let us have a church, Lord. But uh, I thank you, sir, that you're teaching us little by little through this relationship that we have with Jesus. Help us to see what you intended. Help us to look past what we've learned through traditions that that give us a shallow understanding of who you are. We want to know you more. We want to be more like you. Jesus, we want our church to be like you so the world can see that that you are waiting with open arms for them, that you're not holding their sins or their, uh, their discrepancies or inaccuracies or contradictions against them, that you work within their brokenness. Help us to communicate that. Help us to live that out. We love you, sir. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll come back next week. We'll do it again. Have a great Sunday and a great rest of the week.